Welcome to the Red Dirt Nation podcast. I'm out here in the lovely Brisbane Valley with Duncan Brown, who we're going to have a chat with today. And I'm just going to give Duncan an opportunity just to introduce himself to you. Yeah, hi, I'm Duncan Brown. I'm a, a father of three kids, 17, 15, 13, husband of one wife, the beautiful Tricia, and um, I'm currently the managing director of Brisbane Valley Protein, an agribusiness, farming business out in the Brisbane Valley. And this is where we are right now. If you want to check out a little bit more about Brisbane Valley Protein, you can go to brisbanevalleyfarmdirect.com.au and uh, you'll hear a little bit more of the story, see a little bit more of it there anyway. Now, I've known Duncan for about 20 years. Um, when, we, uh, when I was at Bible College, I heard this guy who was doing crazy stuff, still is, um, which is why I was so glad to be able to interview him. What we're going to do just as a bit of a frame for our chat today, is walk through some of the careers or callings that he's had in his life and chat around that and see where it leads. So that's sort of the rough plan we've got and rough it will be probably. But we're going to begin with um, kind of when I first met Duncan. Uh, he'd come out of being a rural journalist for Country Life and the Weekly Times. So he, he was out and about. And I want to hear a little bit from him about what those what times were like when he was uh, doing the journo role. Yeah, they were great times, mate, because I've, I've always loved the land and um, being a rural journalist, although I started in a very humble way, I was given a magnet, which couldn't really go past Toowoomba effectively, and a camera and a flash, uh, no real photography instructions, and, you know, I was set, set loose on Western Queensland, and um, I loved it because it was it really was a license to sticky beak, and I like sticky beaking, and you'd get a call from head office of the country life saying, look, we need... We need someone to comment on the, you know, chickpea tariffs being imposed in the Middle East. And so you'd drive along until you saw some poor farmer on his tractor driving along. Happened to be a chickpea crop. You'd walk out in the middle of the paddock. He'd stop, go, who the heck is this? You'd go, mate, you got any thoughts on, you know, chickpea tariffs? He'd just look at me blankly. I'd say, you know, maybe it's like this. And he'd go, yeah, that sounds good. And next thing he's on page three of the country life. But no, it was, uh, it was a great time, a great journey. And I met some wonderful people. And I think it was the one stream of journalism we had not despised. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a great season. I learned a lot and learned a lot about not being intimidated in intimidating situations. Which I think situated. Yeah. Still going strong, the old country life, which is great. Um, some of the characters you met out there, mate. Can you, is there a, a story of someone who was living in maybe a, a fairly extreme situation, or give us some insight? Oh, mate, I think I think everyone was living in extreme situations because whenever I was a rural journalist, it was drought, and uh, so um, yeah, I mean, there were. I can still remember a. And an elderly widow, uh, dry, you know, who who moved a mob of sheep that was so poor, you know, that their bones were sticking through their skin, and she just literally drove it from one town to the next. Because really, what else do you do? She couldn't part with them. That just sort of signified the last of what she owned. And uh, plenty of stories like that, but plenty of great characters too. I used to love the old retired drovers and just some of those driving stories. Um, you know, a fella who uh, at 14 ran away from home, joined an Indigenous uh, droving camp up in the Kimberley, and his job was to catch every morning at 4am to catch 130 horses in the dark with a young Aboriginal teenager of a similar age. And basically I said, what was your strategy? And he said, every horse had a bell. And we basically listened to the bell that was attached to the nice horses and we caught them first. <laughs> so plenty of, plenty of great yarns. Good strategy. Got a good mate, Billy Williams. His dad was a driver and just love hearing stories of... Um, it's a dying thing now. Still still going a bit, but 
It's sort of a thing of the past, and it's a sad thing in lots of ways. Well, the next leap, at least from my recollection, is um, Duncan being CEO of Scripture Union, uh, which is a school-based Christian organization helping young people in Queensland. And and I'd love to hear a little bit of his reflection at that time, because it's quite a leap from the outback blocks to CEO life. Yeah, well, I'd um, I'd gone from central covering bull sales in central Queensland to covering merino sales, sitting behind Malcolm Fraser and his family, wondering if they were, you know, if I was in fact speaking the same language, and uh, down in the western districts of Victoria, where I was working for the Weekly Times, which is the rural paper down there, and um, and I was loving my job. Uh, I thought, well, this is this is where God has me, and then, uh, but sure enough, God tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Get ready, I've got another assignment." Had no idea what that was. But I guess my wife and I took a leap of faith and resigned from News Limited and, and went to Bible College, started a Bachelor of Ministry. And halfway through that period, I'd been a volunteer for Scripture Union on camps. We ran a camp called Outback Adventure. We would take at-risk boys and put them on Mickey Bulls and try and knock some sense into them. And um, some of those boys are in ministry today, which is great. <laughs> so we didn't knock sense into them. But um, um, And, uh, yeah, did plenty of volunteering and... So I was known to the organisation, but I was only 27, going 28. And uh, Tim Mander, now uh, Deputy Opposition Leader, uh, then Chair of SU, rang and said, Duncan, would you put your hat in the ring? And I said, well, I feel I need to finish this course. So anyway, I must have been the last man standing. They really were scraping the barrel, but I got the gig and they even waited 18 months for me to finish my degree. And I came up and both the toughest and most satisfying season of my life, I'm sure. Uh, Scripture Union was in dire financial straits because it had birthed chaplaincy and uh, people who were traditionally giving to SU the organisation were now giving to SU chaplains, which is a great thing to do, but an organisation was growing at a phenomenal rate, but its capacity to service that growth was diminished. So it was a season of trying to bring alignment, trying to um, align the new part of SU, the, the staff chaplains with the old part of SU, the volunteer base, um, and uh, trying to resource this incredible move of God that was happening, that was had the capacity to completely transform our schools. Incredibly tough. I don't think I slept for the first two years. I don't think I've ever prayed more, but God blessed us ridiculously and the organisation emerged from that season. I still don't know how. I still don't know where the money came from. But we went in possibly technically insolvent and emerged with $7 million in the bank. So it was good. God bless. Such a good story. I remember being around in that time and, and sort of in, in the chaos, somehow God riding that ship. And Duncan was a big part of that. Actually, I'm hoping to interview Peter James soon, who's the current CEO of Scripture Union. And they continue to evolve as an organization. So that'll be a great chat if I can get a hold of him sometime soon. Well, there's the sort of phase where you're CEO of SU and then the next thing in my recollection anyway you pop up as a Baptist pastor in a pretty big church down at Victoria so give us a little bit of an impression of that season and and again why why the why the leap from CEO of SU to sort of everyday pastor ministry yeah well sort of between the SU and the pastor was a season believe it or not as a consultant so uh, because of the the success God brought to SU, I was somewhat sought after. I quickly discovered that my ideas weren't always transferable, so I don't think I was a particularly good consultant. But anyway, people were polite. But during that season, did a lot of work with churches and uh, realised there was this common cry for people to be empowered 
uh, to connect their their faith and their life, and and the the fairly centralised Christendom model of church was struggling to do that, uh, despite some incredible stuff happening. And so I, I really felt well at some point I'm going to have to get my hands on one of these things. So um, and uh, yeah, accepted the call to New Peninsula Baptist, a wonderful church down in the Mornington Peninsula, um, a large church, decentralised. And they were gracious enough to, to I guess, accommodate my desire to work out how can we empower God's people to live for Jesus in the 95% of their waking lives when they're not at church. And um, we had some wins, uh, we had some losses, but people were very gracious and it was an incredible journey I'll never forget, and particularly great one to be able to minister alongside my family. Yeah, so good. And there's a bit of a coffee story in there. We've, we were in our chats leading up to this one started uh, an interesting little enterprise down there yeah well i ran into a, a young barista in our church called sam keck who was who was you know a uh, finished honors in zoology and of course went on to become a barista so um earning the big bucks <laughs> but anyway sammy was uh, constantly getting hunted by these coffee shops and i said mate would you ever want to go out on your own and he said absolutely well no he thought about it. six months later he said let's do it and i worked out I couldn't afford to back him, so I found a couple of other guys, and uh, together we started Common Folk Coffee Company. And I guess one of the exciting things was God prompted us to really say, "Don't, don't wait till you're profitable to be giving." You know, so from the beginning we gave a percentage of every coffee to a thing called Cup That Counts. Um, we put it aside. Uh, we partnered up with a church planning movement in Uganda, who accessed that and uh, to support their church planning. And today. Uh, I cannot remember the name, but their own coffee brand over there is supporting uh, a thousand families who are growing coffee for it, and it's also been instrumental in resourcing, I think, about a dozen uh, church plants over there. So um, that was a great little side venture. So good, and social enterprise is uh, a common theme for Duncan. We might even get back to that as our chat continues. The wind's just picked up, so you might be hearing some of that in the background, but what you're getting is the real country coming through you you're listening to the red dirt nation podcast my name is warren crank and i'm interviewing duncan brown out here at the beautiful brisbane valley if you want to check out a little bit more about what he's up to these days you can go to brisbane valley farm direct.com.au so we're uh out here and you're not a you're not really a pastor anymore mate uh, at least not in the official sense anyway you're working at the pointy end of Brisbane Valley Protein. Now, there's got to be a story there, mate. How did you go from pastor in Victoria to farmer in the lovely Brisbane Valley? Yeah, well, mate, I um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, we were having a great time down south, and but just suddenly started feeling a stirring after five years that we needed to be back supporting family. And uh, you know, I've got a great family. My mother was a social worker, and I think she. Through her, I learned the importance of being compassionate and my father an, an entrepreneur and hopefully I've tried to combine those two things, but it, we felt it was time to come up and really invest in family. And uh, as part of that, we ended up buying a significant block of land off our family with my sister, Selena Gomesel, who was who's the CEO of Outback Futures. And uh, so I started coming up here and working with the family and realizing you know, what an incredible opportunity there was to supply Asia with quality Australian protein, um, you know, they're expecting their consumption pre-COVID. The projections were would increase by 30% in the next decade and Australia was well positioned. At the same time, we're in a community out here where youth unemployment is well over 20% and young people just 
struggle to see a, a vision for their lives beyond where they are and um and so yeah we felt god started to put together a picture for a, for a dedicated food production precinct uh, to streamline approvals and make sure we could be growing poultry and growing beef ethically but efficiently with export capacity. And um, after four years of engaging the local council and the state government, uh, a preliminary approval was given for the master plan and now we're, we're trying to bring that to life with the help of some wonderful South African business partners. And um, yeah, I guess I'm trying to practice what I preach and trying to put my faith in the life here. You know, Ephesians 4 says uh, to live worthy of the call of God on your life. And I think sometimes we confuse calling with assignment. Assignments come and go, uh, but the call, and, and to me, my call is hopefully to mobilise people behind a vision. And I've done that as a CEO, I've done it as a journal, I've done it as a pastor, and now I'm trying to do it as a farmer. And uh, yeah, so it's it's pretty amazing to watch what God's doing here. But it is challenging as well, no doubt. So good. You can actually catch up with Selena Gomesel's um, story in podcast number four. And it was only during that podcast that I joined the dots and realized that they were brother and sister. So uh, how good's that? Well, um, the largest quail in the world, mate. I want to hear, we want to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, no, well, we, the main thing we do is we, we grow chooks and we grow cattle. Um, but we wanted something that we could put our brand on that was distinctive. So... Uh, I had a great feed in a Sydney restaurant one day. I've always liked quail, but found they're a bit fiddly. And uh, this chef put this big bird in front of me, and I said, mate, what's that? He said, it's a quail. And I said, you've got to be joking. I tasted it, and it was love at first sight. So I tracked down the eccentric farmer who bred these big birds down in Maitland, and after two years, he agreed to sell me the genetics. And, uh, we built an abattoir, and now we've got a little hatch to dispatch operation selling quail to... Michelin restaurants in Singapore and Hong Kong and um, and now all around Australia. And while it's a small part of our business, it's really helped catapult the brand, I guess, onto the, onto the world sort of culinary stage in a way that a conventional product would have struggled to do. So. Now, some people listening to the podcast might be aspiring entrepreneurs and, and you know, have perhaps a vision to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. As someone who's got a, an evidence trail made of uh, mostly successful entrepreneurship what advice would you give to someone who's sort of got a dream and um and wants to sort of take it from from something in their head to you know like like this where we're we're actually sitting in the location where a dream is becoming gradually a reality so young entrepreneurs maybe they've got a faith base maybe not what, what would you what would you advise yeah, well, I, I find it humorous, all these entrepreneur courses springing up at universities, because I think if you've got to go to university to be an entrepreneur, you're probably not an entrepreneur. Um, I find the main challenge for me is restraining my entrepreneurism. Um, and uh, look, first thing is um, really test it, test the vision, uh, you bring around you trusted confidence and mentors who have been on a similar journey, but are a bit ahead of the road and test drive it. And don't be precious about feedback because I, you know, I'm putting together an investment memorandum at the moment, and um, you know, the first three rounds I've just been bashed around the head. But I've learned over time that that's actually good for me because it's going to save me pain down the track. So really test drive that idea well. Um, you know, if you're a Christian, really commit that to God because if God's in it, it'll fly. But it probably won't fly the way you thought it'd fly. Um, if not, if you know, if, if you're not a follower, just you know, still seek good advice. Um, and then really count the cost. I mean, we yeah, this all looks great, but it comes with a lot of debt, comes with a lot of risk, comes with a lot of exposure. We were exposed to the worst drought in memory in this area. 
we nearly got burnt out by bushfires. The quail business was just starting to fly, excuse the pun, and then uh, we had to shut it down for four months because of COVID. Um, it's really, really tough. And uh, But if you're an entrepreneur, there's nothing more satisfying. And I think the key is the ideas will come. Ideas are everywhere. The key is test driving that idea making sure you surround yourself with very good people and people who aren't people who are willing to come up and tap you on the shoulder and say mate i don't think we should go that way or i think we should do that differently and embrace that feedback be secure be self-aware and have a go because we need entrepreneurs that's for sure you know we're an unusual breed but um you know a lot of people are employed because of us now he told me a little bit about his dad's story. He's got a little bit of the entrepreneurian too. His dad had ups and downs, like all entrepreneurs entrepreneurs do. Resilience, mate, must be something that's um, that you have to sort of forge because there are disappointments in your own life. Um, you know what what are the sources of resilience for you, or how have you sort of developed that in yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's it. Obviously, my faith is central to everything I do. Um, and I know it sounds cliche, but I think I have over time learned to play to an audience of one. And, um, you know, as a leader and as a business owner, um, you know, you, you, you will be criticised. You will be attacked. People will pull you down. You will, you'll be affected by all manner of things. But I think you're just going to, you know, for me, I start the day and finish the day. Uh, my relationship with God is, is what counts. It's what keeps me grounded. And I think I've learnt to hold on to him tightly and, and hold on to my perceived outcomes fairly lightly. Yeah. Um, that's really important. And uh, because at the end of the day, you know, I know God is far more invested in me than what I do and what I produce for him, even though that's not insignificant. So to me, that's that's the absolute key, mate. I mean, I could lose all of this tomorrow, but I'm still Duncan Brown, a, you know, a beloved child of God. So That's Tremendous, and you talked about um, church being an important part of your whole story, and we've explored a little bit of that. It was interesting just noting your thoughts about decentralizing church. That's been a passion of yours for a while. You're about to embark on something fresh in that regard. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, mate. I mean, particularly in the bush, and that's why I resonate so much with the Red Dirt story. I think there are plenty of great, gifted, godly people out in country towns who are, who are just waiting for a paid pastor to get a call out to their community, and for many of them, they're waiting a long time, but I think God still wants to work through their lives, so I think it's church that's simple church, um, and uh, you know it genuinely utilises the giftings that are there in, in the people who are there, who have a heart for their community, who are in the community, and we're looking at doing something on a very modest scale at Fernvale, uh, just a team of volunteer leaders. Um, you know, there'll, there'll obviously be those, that essential commitment to worship, that essential commitment to community, essential commitment to good teaching, uh, essential commitment to loving and serving your community and your neighbours. But um, yeah, we're going to do it in such a way that it's sustainable, that it's not resource heavy or dependent. And to be honest, it's enjoyable. And, and we have, and uh, to me, a bit of a mantra is, you know, we need the space to relate to the people in our lives if we're so busy running programs. Uh, and we don't have time for that, well, we're missing out. Yeah, I think that's true. Couldn't agree more with that. Now, here we are on this beautiful bit of dirt out here. Not red dirt, but uh, black soil country and sand here, yeah. But uh, what do you love about actually being here, being on the land? What, what, what's, what sort of speaks to you? Mate, I, I just love the space. Um, 
people find it hard to believe, but I am an introvert, so I recharge on my own. Um, I think I'm a better entrepreneur than a farmer, so the boys very politely try to keep me away from the gear most of the time. <laughs> but I love nothing more than an afternoon session on a slasher where you can look back and actually see what you've achieved because <laughs> a lot of what I do, you know, the results are often not intangible or they take so much time to materialise. Um, I enjoy just driving around a paddock of cattle and seeing that they might be deficient and trying to work out how what we can supplement them with and coming back a month later and seeing them flourish. I, I, I just love the tangibility um, of results, the space, uh, the people. You know, I spent a lot of time in ministry and, you know, I used, uh, one of the things I say is, you know, with, with, your, with your ministry team, you spend a lot of time unpacking stuff. Uh, you know, your country colleagues, they're just quite happy for you to tell them what to do, <laughs> which, is re- which is refreshing. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I love it. I, I, I'll never move back to the city, mate, even though we're not far from the city. And, uh, yeah, no, it's a very great opportunity. I'm very grateful for it. All right, mate. Well, where have you been in Australia beyond this beautiful part of the world that really has sort of captivated you? Describe it to us. Yeah, well, I had the um, I had the good fortune of going to the Barclay Tableland to a property called Herbert Vale, right up on the Northern Territory Queensland border, and yeah, just uh, I just found that country absolutely captivating, and uh, and just the the gorges and the ridges and the, and the way the cattle flourish and yet you're wondering what they're eating just the, the good land management that happens up there yeah it was just it was just stunning and the uh, the hospitality on that station was unforgettable so that's a that's a recent one that made an impression lovely might go there myself now um you've been part of this country for a long time and um i'm sure you have some hopes and dreams for australia i mean the people we're interviewing probably have different variations on what that dream might be but we'd love to hear yours as you see Australia moving forward in the next five or ten years um, what would what would be some of your hopes for us as a community us as a nation yeah look mate I, I, I think I'd like to think that we become a country we start to see um, a lessening of this tribalization that we're seeing I think I hope we're a country that's marked by respect a country where people can have a civil conversation and even a civil debate where it's okay to disagree with your neighbour. I think that's going to be really important. Um, I think it's, you know, I hope it remains a country that makes it a little bit easier for entrepreneurs like me to have a go and to make something because when when we make something happen, you know, we take people with us. We create opportunity and at the moment it often is extremely hard getting things off the ground, just the amount of red tape and green tape and everything else but at the same time um we've found by taking the community on the journey with us you know we've had a great a great response which has been fantastic so i think respect and um yeah i mean i i i think a country that learns to re-engage with jesus in a very authentic way um our way you know um and uh yeah that'd be a few thoughts really good all right well we're about to finish with one last question and it's about life wisdom. We've, uh, we've, you know, we've shared a little bit about advice to perhaps a budding entrepreneur, but this is more just general life wisdom, something that Duncan would like to leave us all with, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, well, I forgot to read this question, Warren, so it's coming off the cuff. Um, look, I think um, life wisdom, obviously, obviously, you'd expect someone like me to say, have a go, you know, uh, if, if you've got a dream, go for it. But... 
not to attach your identity to that dream because dreams come and go. Uh, you know, for every one of my dreams that's materialised, there are 20 that have fallen by the wayside. And, uh, you know, I've learned not to be too hard on myself. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, imba- I'm ambitious about staying connected to Jesus now. I'm ambitious on surrounding myself with good people that I enjoy doing life for. And I'm ambitious about ensuring there's margin to actually invest in the things that matter. So, yeah, that'd be a few things. That's tremendous. Well, you've been listening to the Red Dirt Nation podcast. Duncan Brown has been my wonderful guest today. Thanks for tuning in, and hopefully we'll talk soon sometime down the track. See ya.